The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we hear more business success stories, discuss this week's headlines and get brilliant and free advice from the boardroom. We're also joined this morning by Angela Prentner-Smith, the founder and managing director of This Is Milk. And as always, if you want advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, simply email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Gentlemen, lots of interesting topics this week, including the UK government's net zero strategy and your favourite subject, Willie, heat pumps. But before we get into the bones of it, for the technically illiterate, like me, how do heat pumps work, Willie? Well, um, I'm amazed at some of the things that I've read and heard this week. And uh, it's quite obvious that because you cop, people are getting sound bites out there and they're trying to outdo each other, right? But let's be quite clear about this. This is a, this whole thing by Boris Johnson about heat pumps is an, an utter, complete nonsense, right? This is coming from someone who sells heat pumps and installs heat pumps and I have been doing for 35 years, Okay. I totally understand why we have to get away from gas. You know, we don't want to be held ransom by Mr. Putin. So what's the problem from changing from gas boilers to electric boilers? Okay, We have two major utility companies in, in Scotland, Scottish Southern Energy and Scottish Power, telling us now that all the utility that they provide to the house in Scotland comes from renewables. There is a big giant tick, right? But let me tell you, anyone who thinks that heat pumps is the answer is completely wrong. And just for the for the listeners, right, who maybe don't understand what heat pumps are, heat pumps is a, a generator, right, that g- generates power through a compressor, fan motor, through a transfer of heat, okay? The, the unit on the outside is called a condensing unit, right? I'm not going to get too technical here, right? But what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to use the outside air, right, um, to, to generate heat. So the, the, not to get too technical, it's supposed to be Use six kilowatts of energy and get nine kilowatts out, okay? I would say that that works fine in an air conditioning unit when you use it 365 days a year, but just for heating and cooling, just for heating, uh, certainly heat pumps are not the answer. And the cost, the government is waving in front of you a a bribe of £5,000 towards the cost. If you want to go from a a gas system to an electric system, it costs you roughly about £3,000. Same, normal. If you go to a heat pump, it's maybe going to cost you twelve. So even with £5,000 from the government, people are still going to have to get finance, right? Normal working class man and woman is not going to be able to afford another £4,000 towards the cost of a new system, right? But the interesting thing, and make this quite clear to everyone, this week in the segment on the BBC, it told you about Boris Johnson's whole push for heat pumps, right? Air source heat pumps. But he then went on to show you a man who lives in a steading who's got a ground source heat pump. And he tells you it's the best thing he's ever had. And he's right, right? Because this uses, you bury pipes in the ground if you've got the acreage. So if you're in a small farm and you've got a car park and you can bury pipes in the ground, that's called a ground source heat pump. And there you're using geothermal. And trust me, if everybody had the space, that is the way forward. 
100%. If you can use ground source heat pumps and you've got the space, 100% that will make a big, big difference to the utility that you use and to, to the emissions. But air source heat pumps will not, right? So the heat pump policy is bombed with lefty green activists, energy experts and commentators in the centre and Tory MPs and newspapers on the right. Willie, who supports our Tom? Who supports it and why are they regarded as so green and energy efficient? Well, I think, I think Donald, this is um, another case of a brilliant, laudable, audacious goal Let's get the UK to net zero by 2050. Yes, I don't think anybody disagrees. How could we look at our children or our grandchildren in the eye if we don't get this right? Therefore, tick in the box for that. That's the easy bit. Get our electric totally green by 2030, ban petrol and diesel cars. These are the easy headlines, sound bites, as Willie calls them. The difficulty comes to say, how do we do it? Where is the person in the UK government who said heat pumps, air source heat pumps are the answer? Because someone who has been selling them for 35 years is telling us it's nonsense. Well, we're going to explore some of the issues here because we have the expert, Willie, first. But I think it'd be really interesting for the listeners to hear what a heat pump sounds like Willie. I was down in London two weeks ago at a wedding and I couldn't believe it. There was a heat pump just outside one of the windows and obviously it's a big, big topic. So I decided to record the noise from the heat pump. So have a listen. That was me standing eight feet away from the condensing unit. So can you imagine I'm building 300 foot... Sorry? Must have been a fun wed. I'm building 356 apartments around the corner here. And if I had to put 356 of these, which we call in the trade window rattlers, right? There's one good thing about this, let me tell you, right? The 90,000 people that Boris Johnson is going to give £5,000 each to fit these. Trust me, they will never vote for him again. <laughs> never. This is the only good thing. And, and, and I want to make a serious point. And far be it from me how to tell the Scottish government how to get the people behind them. Here is one instance where the Scottish government and the ministers there could prove to everybody in Scotland that they're smarter than the people down south. Do not take this initiative on board. Trust me, this is up there with the poll tax, right? People will absolutely hate this, right? And and I think that Scotland could be smarter and better here and we can come up with better ideas to be greener. I want, to, I want everything we do, right, to be heading towards net zero, every single thing. So I'll give you an example. At the moment, the way it stands, if I listen to the UK government, if I'm building a new apartment just now, I need a solar panel. If I've got an electric wet system, I need a solar panel on the roof and I need, a, 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 if I'm going to fit a heat pump. The cost of both of these is £15,000. Right? I'm saying, fit an electric boiler and spend that £15,000 enhancing the insulation. This is what Carol Lucas is saying. This is what the Green Party are saying. Everything has got to start with the fabric. 
The other point as well, of all the tenement flats, of every flat there is, where do they put the condensing unit for a heat pump? No one is answering these questions. As Tom says, where is the, let's find the person who wants to come out right now. I'm giving him the opportunity. Come on the show and tell us why they were deciding to advise the government we should be fitting heat pumps as, as, as our central heating answer to, to getting to as net zero. Absolute nonsense. Well, before the show, uh, we were talking about the servicing costs. Yeah. Um, I think it's really worth sharing with listeners the difference between heat pumps and a normal boiler. Yeah, I mean, really, you've, you've got a condensing unit that has to be external to the house, right? So what, are they all going to be strapped onto the wall like, like dishes, you know, like the old sky dishes, right? And how you get to them and maintain them. And there's no doubt, at the moment, within your system, whether it's a gas or electric system, you will have a thermostat, and if it's an electric system, you'll have, a, you'll have an element in your boiler. That's the two moving parts, okay? You may have a pump. Very seldom do they break down. If you move to a heat pump, you're going to have a system that has a compressor, you're going to have a, a fan motor, you're going to have an electronic board. You're going to, the, the cost to the end user here will be four times what it is at the moment. And, and there's something else that I should mention. Electricity is still going to be the thing that drives the compressor. So what's wrong with fitting an electric element system, right, rather than this? But here's a big, big point. The refrigerant that's used within a system, right, being in the refrigeration and air conditioning industry, we are the, you know, we're the number one target for the climate change people because of the ozone layer and everything that the fluorocarbons was doing at ozone layer, which is correct. We're going back to having gas in the systems, not gas as you know, not LNG, but, but fluorocarbons, right? So all of this, there is not one thing that is right about a heat pump being the solution. Well, there are doubts that the heat pumps are a realistic solution for poorly insulated and older homes. You talked about uh, Caroline Lucas from the Greens. She says using a heat pump in a poorly insulated home is like buying a teapot with cracks in it. More than a third of UK homes were built pre-war, I didn't know that, and only 17% were built after 1990. Do you think those concerns about poorly you know, insulated homes are valid? Well, it tells you everything when the government come out with a scheme and the Greens are the first to attack it. Right, so there will not be news today that I'm attacking it, but I think, seriously, rather than sitting here having a go, I'm saying to all the clever people within the Scottish government, there is a huge opportunity for you here to prove to the rest of the UK that we're cleverer up here. Tom? Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm almost speechless. That, um, But it's just it just goes back to government writing policy in a vacuum, Donald. I mean, yeah. as, as I say, can we get the person, can we do an interview with the person, can we get them in a debate with Willie? Because I know who my money's on. So for goodness sake, government, every government, if you're writing policy, get people who know what they're talking about, understand what the customer needs, and don't write your policy in a vacuum. I, 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 I'm almost speechless. Willie, you're never speechless on heat pumps. This is just a, another example of, you know, a, a fast reaction when there's no science behind it. Let's look at the last two initiatives, okay? Smart meters. 
So I watched an advert the other night telling us about how good smart meters are and how they've worked. Now, smart meters are great for people to have a better understanding of what's happening. Smart meters never cut any emissions, as it tells you in the advert. People reacting to what the smart meter was doing cuts emissions, okay? So the great thing about smart meters is that you don't get estimated bills. And it means now that the utility companies don't need people to come and read your meter and blah, blah, blah. But for the end user for a smart meter, the only way, right, that a smart meter was any good is if you cut back in your energy. So the smart meter on its own didn't cut any, right? I watched Rip Off Britain yesterday morning, right? And I couldn't believe it. They, the first item that was on the show was all about one of the last schemes the UK government introduced was the we'll give you £10,000 towards insulating your home. Back to Caroline Lucas's part, right? There was 230 people on a Zoom call that had got the 10000 and won't want to say it was the worst day of their lives. The programme couldn't get one person to come on and say it was a good idea after the, after the event. So really for me, we need to get back to insulating the homes, coming up with you know a, a system that's not going to end up costing the end user four times more than it could. We all want to get green. Right, everybody wants to get green, but let's make sure we're not putting all a you know a burden that's not needed to be put onto the the end user. So, how should we best insulate homes, and why are we so poor compared to other countries, Willie? I think it's all down to a lot of the houses. You know, just after the war were built and there wasn't materials you know available. There's 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 houses up in Kings Park, not far from here. Where you know when when guys go to uh, renovate the houses, you know they were just built after the war. That you found that there was paper used as insulation, right? You know you could actually punch your hand through the wall. Yeah, through loads of them, not just one, loads of them. And uh, I won't mention the name of the a very a very good company actually who built them after the war. The people needed them. I, I think that that's one of the problems we didn't have. We didn't have an understanding. We didn't have the materials. And, and to be honest, we've done everything on the cheap. So, but I think now we, we are understanding now of insulation. I know there's a big, big push to insulate older stock, you know, like tenements, whatever. Unfortunately, that's it's expensive, it's difficult, it takes a long, long time. I would seriously look at the amount of money that we spend refurbishing houses and try and do a comparison where it be actually to build new. You know, there will be there'll be good stock that we will want want to re-insulate. But I think that there'll be a lot of cases where maybe to re-insulate it to, an, to a standard, you may be as well knocking them down and building new houses. So what is that standard? Is it should we be triple glazed? Or, you know, as you look at Scandinavian countries, they seem to have got it right. So the, 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 the measurement for insulation is called the U-factor. Okay, so that's the, if I was in your house that was well insulated, I'm going to stand inside, it'll be high. If, it, if it's not, it'll be low, right? And what we need to do is change, change. So if we're saying at the moment that you need, let's try and break it down so everyone understands. If we're saying at the moment that the regulation is that you need four inches of insulation between the outside wall and inside wall, let's make it six. You know, let's make it eight, whatever, and then the windows. So we don't want the cold to be getting out the house or the cold to be getting into the house. I think that this, this is this is a no-brainer. Just, just change the regulation as to, to the insulation of the house and see if we get the insulation right. Trust me, that'll do more to drive emissions down than, than, than anything else. I agree with the Greens. <laughs> On a positive note, 
Boris's net zero strategy was praised as being the most comprehensive and ambitious plan of any major country. Tim Lord, who's the net zero boffin at the Tony Blair Institute, calls it a serious piece of work that means the UK can meaningfully claim to have the most comprehensive whole economy net zero strategy in the world. Do you agree? Or is it just that there's a low bar set from the rest of the world? He obviously hadn't had his name in the papers for a few weeks and decided <laughs> to come up with something outrageous. Tell Timmy to come on the programme and talk us through heat pumps. <laughs> Tom, do you have a view? Was uh, Tim right? Um, so I think heat pumps notwithstanding, I'm, I'm, I'm going to agree with Willie, but I think the rest of the, the as I say, the big strategic aims of our net zero 2050 is a good programme. Um, and I think government's role here is to set out the big strategic framework and then let people who really understand it get working. They've got to incentivize businesses, private individuals to do the right thing. And there's going to be huge amounts of money going into the technology and there'll be technology that's not even been invented yet, which will help us get there. Bill Gates was over in Britain this week. He was putting 200, he wasn't quite sure, or Boris wasn't quite sure, was it 200 or 400 million? But hey, it's only a couple of hundred million between friends. But I would say that the UK government has set out an ambitious strategic framework. As ever, the devil is in the detail. Let's incentivise people to do the right thing. Let's incentivise entrepreneurs to get on this and then we will because we must crack this. Willie? Let me be clear. Uh, I am all for setting targets and I want to get there ASAP. So to have an initiative that try and get um, net zero by 2050 is fantastic and we should do everything. But here's the reality. Okay, We've got a major world conference here in two weeks, Right. Two of the worst polluters in the world have already said they're not coming. We just need India to pull out now along with Russia and China and what's the use of having it? Oh. Right. <laughs> that's the problem. That is the problem with the whole thing. And that's the argument that the naysayers come up with that, you know, if the um, if the big superpowers are actually, you know, the worst offenders are not buying into what we're talking about. And even... Putin is putting out sound bites this week about his green credentials and everyone's everyone's got something to say, you know, about all you're reading at the moment is about, you know, there's a new planning application here or something there and everyone's net zero, net zero. It's the, it's the buzzwords at the moment. But getting back to the, the, you know, the, the crux of the matter, it is absolutely imperative that we all work hard to get to that ASAP and I'm all for that. But what I'm saying is do not let people who do know what they're talking about Come up with ideas that's going to cost the, the you know the rank and file fortunes and not going to add anything to the emissions target. Well, we talked about COP twenty six there, Tom. How confident are you that this will be a huge success for the world, the UK government, and of course Glasgow? Wow, big questions, Donald. So, first of all, the good news is that it's got us all talking about it. It's focusing people's mind. I'm disappointed that Putin and President Xi of China are not coming. I think it is a blow, definitely. But it mustn't, it mustn't deter us, you know. We do need to get on. And 
a lot of these conferences, and COP26 is no different, the work goes on behind the scenes. The actual conference is usually some some dignitaries signing some bits of paper, but the hard work has gone on before. And I really hope, I don't know, but I really hope behind the scenes, America, India, China and Russia are coming together. Um, I don't know if I'm too hopeful about that. But um, so, number one, the world is talking about it. Number two, it's happening in Glasgow. Well, um, I think, as I said months ago, Glasgow's got to make the most of this. It's got to be um, a marketing opportunity like no other. The world is coming to Glasgow and Glasgow has got to speak to the world. So we've got to portray ourselves the best of Glasgow. Now, Willie knows more about it than I do and there are some challenges, but let's get Glasgow out there and show that we're world class. So I'm optimistic, I'm positive, let's see. Willie, are you confident? And can I ask you, you'll be working behind the scenes, hopefully talking to Scottish ministers about heat pumps and a different strategy and... Um, during these two weeks, we're actually taking, this show's taking a break because both you and Tom are so heavily involved, as I am with the Herald. Um, but do you think when you emerge from it, will have a Scottish government that might embrace a different strategy? Well, I have to be fair to the Scottish government. Um, John Swinney's advisor already has had a call with me. We had a chat about heat pumps. So I congratulate them on that and they're actually looking at it. Um, so I think this is a huge opportunity, huge opportunity for Glasgow to showcase itself throughout the world. And as Tom says, you know, never during the conference does anything sort of come to light about what you've achieved. But hopefully, you know, like the um, Montreal Protocol and the Kyoto Protocol, so the Glasgow Protocol, people will be talking about in 10 years, but maybe, maybe, just maybe, that this will be the conference where people actually acted after they had agreed and, and Glasgow should be very proud of that. But I'm hoping, as you say, the good thing about COP is we're getting a two-week break <laughs> from the show because we're all busy working on various things about COP. But I think that uh, it's, a, it's a big, big opportunity for us and, and hopefully after it, people will have, have um, enjoyed the experience of being in Glasgow. So how confident are you, Tom and Willie, of actually getting into the city? Um, because uh, most residents, people, that's the biggest challenge. We're telling our staff, work from home, no trains running, uh, limited buses, major road diversions, uh, half the city shut off. Uh, I mean, there's a potential that from the city itself, people who live and work in it, that there could be a negative reaction. Well, Donald, to be fair, if you're lucky enough to get a green badge, which you'll probably nobody want a badge because it's green, right? But <laughs> if you can get a green badge, you can you can you can get about a bit easier. I'm happy to be in the blue zone. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I I think that the the people who decided to put their houses on Airbnb and let them for a couple of weeks and they're away to Spain for a couple of weeks while I've let them out have had the right idea. Yeah, it will be. But I think, as I say, hopefully we can put up with that for the for the next couple of weeks and it'll be worthwhile. It's, the... it's a small price to pay, Donald, yes. for. And as Willie said, Glasgow protocols will hopefully be talked about for in the years to come. I really, really hope. Well, next week also sees the UK Budget Stroke Spending Review on Wednesday. What three things do you want to see happen? And what is the one thing Rishi Sunak shouldn't do, Tom? 
So what I would like to see, and it's all run about um, employment. So for for businesses now, pretty much every business, it's all about the attraction and retention of talent. And I'm going to add another phrase in here, which is the training. Um, one of the consequences of Brexit is that I've used the number before, 364,000 EU nationals have left the UK um, workforce. And that's why we're seeing shortages in various industries. And Boris is telling us we've got to grow our own. Fair enough. Um, This is a long-term strategy. And therefore, anything that can help businesses train, retrain, attract and retain talent, in the budget, incentivise the correct behaviour. That's my big, and I'll just say it three times because that's my number one, two and three, (laughs) incentivise the correct behaviour for business. And the correct behaviour is to train, to retrain talent so that they, they, they come into your company, they make a positive contribution and you re- retain them. That's so important. Willie, my message to Boris and to Rishi is grow a pair and scrap the apprenticeship levy. <laughs> right, and that, that would sort everything that Tom has just spoke about. Right, <laughs> let's get young people back into work because trust me, when all the dust settles here, they're going to be the group affected the most, and we've got to get young people into training. And uh, that was one, you know, that was one of the worst um, initiatives I've ever, you know, no one, no one in Britain thought it was a good idea. In business, in some way, and only trainers thought it was a good idea. Companies are run training companies, and and I think that um, for me that would be the one thing. Well, put it this way, it would certainly get me back in um, employing lots more apprenticeships. So as political slogans go, I think that's right up there. Grow up here is right up there. The flavour isn't working. <laughs> yep. That's been very controversial Trust this you morning. remember that one, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Another controversial decision was the one to exclude uh, Scotland from the carbon capture cluster developments. Was that the right decision by the UK government for Scotland, Tom? Again, I'm... I'm listening to people who understand it, Sir Ian Wood, and he's saying, why? He doesn't understand it. If he doesn't get it, I don't get it. So it it looks to me wrong decision. Um, Just a wee start on that, but the rock formations under the North Sea and the East Irish Sea have the capacity to hold 78 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide, around 190 times greater than the UK's annual emissions 400 million tonnes. So, Willie, was this a politically motivated decision? But here's another great example, right? Again, to the Scottish Government. Do not take no for an answer, right? So if there's anything that you think that you've been held back by the UK Government, find a way round it and get it done. Oh, it's been a feisty start to the show. Bring it on. (laughs) Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Angela Prentner-Smith, the founder and managing director of This Is Milk. Don't forget, if you want to join the boardroom, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Inspiring advice for Scottish business. 
Welcome back as we're joined by Angela Prentner-Smith, founder and managing director of This Is Milk. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. But before we chat to Angela, in the latest of our brilliant series in Great Scots, we tell the story of John Logie Baird. John Logie Baird was born on the 13th of August, 1888 in Helensborough, the fourth and youngest child of Reverend John and Jesse Baird. By his early teens, he had developed a fascination with electronics and was already beginning to conduct experiments and build inventions. After completing his primary schooling, Baird studied electrical engineering at the Royal Technical College in Glasgow. However, his studies were interrupted with the outbreak of World War I, albeit he would be rejected for service due to health issues. Left to pursue his interests in England, he worked for a utilities company and started a manufacturing business before moving to Trinidad and Tobago where he briefly operated a jam factory. Returning to the United Kingdom in 1920, Baird began to explore how to transmit moving images along with sounds. He lacked corporate sponsors, however, so he worked with whatever materials he was able to scrounge. Cardboard, a bicycle lamp, glue string and wax were all parts of his first televisor, as it was then known. In 1924, Baird transmitted a flickering image of a few feet away. When, in 1925, he succeeded in transmitting a televised image of a ventriloquist dummy, he said the image of the dummy's head forms itself on the screen with what appeared to me an almost unbelievable clarity. I had got it. I could scarcely believe my eyes and I felt myself shaking with excitement. In 1927, Baird transmitted sounds and images over more than 400 miles of telephone wire from London to Glasgow. And in 1928, he sent the first television transmission across the Atlantic Ocean from London to New York. From 1929, the BBC would begin using Baird's technology to broadcast its earliest television programming. Baird continued his explorations for the rest of his life, developing colour television and 3D television, though they were never reproduced beyond his laboratory. At the age of 34, when Baird began his quest to develop television, he already had a string of business ventures behind him. He had narrowly failed to invent processes for the manufacture of industrial diamonds and the air-sold shoe. Other experiments ranged from a disastrous homemade hemorrhoid cream to a rustless glass razor, with which he had badly cut himself before abandoning the project. And with this, we have one of the finest examples of why you should never give up. One of history's great inventors, Beard's early fascination with electronics would one day impact every corner of the world. A legacy indeed that will never be forgotten. Great Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. A fantastic inventor, and of course the link with Glasgow and nearby the Grand Central Hotel where he uh, broadcast his first long-distance television pictures from the fourth floor of the hotel. <laughs> what a story. I mean, I never knew this stuff about, you know, he'd obviously been worked in a jam factory then from a jam to hemorrhoid cream to TV, you know. It's interesting, but this is a, a great feature and, and the listeners obviously love it. Tom, TV... <laughs> I really believe that these stories should be taught in our schools. Mm -hmm. There's a great pride in how Scotland invented the modern world and people don't know these stories. So I think as a matter of national pride, we should get it into the classrooms and celebrate Great Scots. Started in the Go Radio Business Show, taken to the world. Fantastic. Here, here. And talking of inspiration, we're delighted now to welcome Angela Prentner-Smith, the founder and managing director of This Is Milk. Thanks for joining us this morning, Angela. 
Tell us a little bit about what This Is Milk and how did it come about? Sure. Um, so I started my career at the student loans company and I worked there part time through my studies and eventually once I graduated had the choice of either going into academia because I'd, I'd done quite well in my degree and I could have gone down a sort of master's PhD route but I'd also worked my way up through the company in a part time fashion and um, was in a, in a like a team management role by that point. So I decided then I actually wanted some money and I wanted my own front door and I didn't want to study anymore and I could always go back to that. So I decided to take a full-time role uh, as a team manager in like a customer services department. And about six months after that, I applied for a job as what was then called an e-business analyst. And this was right at the beginning of kind of digital services and, you know, as, as actually interacting with the public sector and with organizations through e-commerce, through digital, etc. Um, I mean, e-business isn't even a word we use anymore. So I got the job because I had the experience in the company, but also as part of my degree, which was in history of art, I did one module in what was then called multimedia analysis and design. So the combination of this rare skill set that nobody had back then gained from one module of my degree and the background in the company, I got this job. And it was actually a fantastic job because it really, because it was ill-formed, nobody knew what they were doing in that space yet. I got to get my hands in everything. So I was involved from things right from the beginning to the end, all over the business, anything that came to do with digital. Right at the start of kind of public sector trying to get more human-centered, designing services with, you know, citizens in mind, with, with students as it was in that case in mind. So got involved in things like user research and design and brand. But then, of course, um, I think it was it was the year after the financial crash and the public sector were cutting budgets and I got the opportunity to take voluntary redundancy. And I thought, well, nobody's ever going to pay me this much money not to work. And if the company's contracting right now, I couldn't see my boss going anywhere. I was kind of like this is probably the time to go. So I did. And from there, I took on a number of roles, always in these kind of strange places where they didn't quite know what the job was yet, but on big innovation pro pro programs. So for example, the Carbon Capture and Storage Consortium project that Scottish Power did with Acker, Shell um, and National Grid, moved on to Tesco Bank, where I was working on their, their current accounts program before they had a current account. Um, and then the last role that I was in was actually in Barclays Wealth, which was about digitizing their stock broking offering. But my frustration in all of this was actually in what I could see coming. We were still delivering projects and we were still running businesses as if digital didn't exist, even when the outcomes were digital. And the organizations were often um, driven by hierarchy still and not things that were going to get us the best digital products out to customers. And I could see that the skills that the people had in these roles weren't even fit for now. For those that um, are not digitally savvy, Angela, although I'm supposed to be, but probably <laughs> uh, as somebody who phoned IT for help because my camera didn't work, my laptop, they said, have you moved the wee slide over the camera? I said, what we slide? <laughs> Not the highlight of my day, but probably the highlight of the IT help desk uh, <laughs> week. But can you explain exactly what it is you were doing to transform businesses? Yeah, so an awful lot of it has nothing to do with the technology. 
it's actually about skills, it's about culture, it's about how workplaces actually operate now. Um, we're still we're still fighting against the um, the structures that we've had since the Industrial Revolution that were put in place to run businesses and run society um, based on what we needed at that time. And now with humans' expectations of what things can do for us, like what's in our mobile phone, what Alexa can do, what all of the kind of things that we use in our day-to-day lives can do, um, the structures of businesses don't move fast enough for us to be able to deliver those those products and those services and the experiences to employees or to the customers. So how should they be structured then? What's what's uh, the difference? Uh, it depends on the business. It's, it's unique. It is unique to every business. Um, um, we we are when I talk about transformation, generally what we're talking about is around business models. So you know, new business models such as like Amazon, Uber, these kinds of things. We've got like platforms. Um, you've, you're you're also talking about people. You're talking about people transformation, and this can be be looked at. So when you think about how a large bank would have been structured, probably some of them still are. You have a marketing department, you have finance, you have technology over here, and often never the twain shall meet. And there's all these reporting streams going up and people are spending every day on a Friday writing reports to get up to the management and everything else. Working like that doesn't really enable the diverse problem solving that we need. It doesn't enable the speed that we need to get changes out to customers. And it actually doesn't empower the staff in the way that people expect now. Um, We have got new generations coming up through the ranks and their expectations of a working environment are different to what you know, even mine was as a kind of, I don't know, I don't know if I'm the youngest of the millennials or the oldest of Generation X, but but expectations are changing for everybody, for absolutely everybody. So you can, you can do business process transformation, you can have people transformation, you can do um, business model transformation. And all of these things have been enabled by digital as a catalyst. It's a catalyst for the change. But often the hardest bit about the change is the people side of things, right? Tom, Willie, can I bring you in? Is that your experiences with business? Is this the hardest well, thing it's in, in business? It's interesting that Angela says about the, the model has been the same for 70, 80 years and it hasn't changed in the structure of a business. And we heard last week you know, from our guest about he can't believe that well-being is at the heart of every single thing they do and 10 years ago they'd have dismissed that. So I think that, and we spoke about it before, about culture. So this whole, you know, the, the digital transformation, how getting everyone to buy into it within the business and how you break down those old structures, I think definitely now is a new modern way of running a business, yep. right? So so you've got, you know, things that you wouldn't think that when you come to put some non-execs together on your board to bring things to the business that you don't have, like culture, like well-being, like digital transformation. These are all things that you would know. The way we didn't talk about um, HR or IT 30 years ago, these are the new buzz categories that we're having to be part of a successful business. And if if you're not into that, then maybe you're getting left behind. So, Angela, first of all, I love the name of the business. Can you maybe tell us where where the name comes from? <laughs> sure. So um, that is probably the question I get asked the most. <laughs> okay. Um, so 
I originally founded the company with uh, a lady called Jillian. So it was the two of us that founded the company together. And we... When was this? This was... Uh, so there's like three answers to that question, but it was round about 2015 that we initially um, came up with the concept of This Is Milk. And we got together and we were in that really exciting phase when you're starting a business of deciding what you want to be, what are the services you want to offer, what is your brand, all of that good stuff. And we definitely knew what we didn't want to be. Um, and we had a good idea of what we did, but coming up with the name was quite difficult. So what I did is I plotted a brand matrix of what we thought were our four brand values at the time, which were aspirational, accessible, authentic, and simple. And then I took a bunch of logos that I thought embodied those things and I plotted them. And what came out to us is they all had very simple everyday names. So we thought, okay, let's let's get to something, you know, we didn't want to be like Accenture or Strategizer or anything like that. That wasn't us. We wanted that kind of simple, ubiquitous. Our business was about change and change is every day. So we started looking around that. And to be honest, we didn't have any other contenders that were of any good. I couldn't even tell you any of the other names, <laughs> but we thought milk, milk would be good. Um, but you know, doing our due diligence. There was a design agency and I think it was in Manchester called Milk, so couldn't do that. And we thought, well, we could be This Is Milk in terms of a URL. And it was Gillian that said, no, that should be the name because that's a declaration. That's like saying this is who we are. So we went with This Is Milk. And of course, milk, it is ubiquitous. It's also versatile. It's adaptable. It nourishes you. It's about growth, right? And change is about growth and adaptability and versatility. So it really embodied the nature of our business and what we do. And we also liked the fact that you could shorten it to Tim. And it was a bit friendly. Like, you know, it wasn't your management consultants that you don't want to call. It's just like, just call Tim, which I know has different contexts in the West of Scotland. But... The idea. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all clear to me now why this is... Mo I get it. Fantastic marketing. As you say, one half of the city. So, so Angela, I love your story because it really embodies for me you've been learning by doing because a, a phrase you used was that you didn't really know what the job was, the company didn't know what the job was, but you knew it was something and you just get in there and you worked it out. I, I just love that. Can I ask your opinion? You talked about your academic progress do you think this is something that can be taught through university or do you think it's more of a vocational apprenticeship, so learning on the job? What's the what's your kind of view in that? Oh, that is a good question. I mean, I, sometimes I think the whole thing needs just burnt down and started again in terms of education. <laughs> I spoke to, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but um, he was from the University of Salford in Manchester. And he was talking about when they're getting people in now onto entrepreneurship programs, their first job is actually teaching them to fail um, because they've been through an education system that is about box ticking it's about getting things right when actually as you know as entrepreneurs it's about learning through failure it's about fail fast pick yourself up again that didn't work right let's see what does work but when you're taught in a test environment which is past this test you're not being tested on whether you've experimented you're being tested on whether you got the answers right so I actually think right from the ground up from you know p1 onwards we need to be 
teaching people, particularly women, and I'm saying that with data behind it, women are taught to be perfectionists. Um, you know, we it's it's this idea of careful, careful, don't get that wrong. Um, and there's a great YouTube video about that and about how women don't go into coding because coding is about experimentation and women are taught to be perfectionists. Um, wow. Yes. That's, that's amazing, Angela. So see when you're taking someone on. Yeah. What are you looking for? Because the listeners will be out there thinking, right, this is the brave new world. Maybe I'm thinking of going to university. Maybe I'm thinking of getting some experience. What What did you look for when you're taking someone on into your business? That's a really good question. And that's changed a lot for me over the years. Um, and yeah. probably every time I've taken someone on, it's been different context, different circumstances, and I'm looking for something different. But first and foremost, the thing that I would say is fundamental is integrity. Um, like, right. you know, I, I don't want to work with somebody that doesn't have that integrity piece. And the second bit is versatility. You know, we're a small entrepreneurial business. I can't have anybody sitting there going, that's not my job. Well, today it is your job, right? Someone yeah. needs to take the trash out. I still do it, right? So it's about that, that, that versatility, that ability to go, I've never done this before. Today I will, right? I absolutely love that. And you, you just recently won an award, the Glasgow Business Awards. So well done for that. Thank you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, I, I felt with awards that I've always been the bridesmaid, never the bride, because I think this is something like my my tenth nomination, um, and it's only the, it's only my second win. We won uh, we won an award for innovation and transformation consultancy a few years back, but that's been the only one we've actually won. But this, on a personal level. Um, well, it was a bit of a surprise because I am so used to, you know, coming shortlisted but never winning. I mean, as far as timing goes, it was really a nice win because obviously this year we've all lived through a pandemic. I had a baby. I've also, you know, transformed my business. We went from three people to I've now got with contractors, we've got 20. Um, wow. so yeah. So over, over the course of this year, we've also launched a technology arm to the business. Um, so we've gone from a small consultancy and training business to a large consultancy and training business with a technology arm. And we're working with, you know, the lights of the Scottish government. So ending that was a pandemic and a baby and a seven-year-old and all the rest of it. So on a personal level, it was probably, I, I think I deserved it. I deserved to win. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. I think you Quite certainly right. did deserve that. You grew your business during the pandemic. So was the pandemic good for you because businesses needed to adapt quickly? Yes. I spent the first five years of actually being in business being told you're too soon. You're too early. The stuff you're talking about, people don't want to hear. I actually had people saying, Angela, just come in and do the job. And I was going, but it's not what you need. I know you think you need that, but it's not. And it was just, it was like the stars aligned last year. And suddenly some of the things that ethically and from a kind of personal perspective, I rejected. I saw how many agencies ran and I saw people that I genuinely respected and still do. I saw the type of business that they had to run to operate in a certain commercial environment. And I thought that's not sustainable. And that's also not the person I want to be. And I rejected it. And last year, it was like suddenly it was like I was vindicated and nobody cared about whether you had a big flashy office and whether you were, you know, courting people by taking them out for, you know, expensive meals and stuff like this. And suddenly it was about we need change. We need adaptability. We need something human centered. Um, we, we need this stuff. 
And we were able to show, um, particularly through the CivTech challenge, which led to our technology arm, just how flipping good we were at problem solving. Um, and we did it. And we just, it was be the change you want to see in the world. And we were here and we were ready. We're going to come back to just how you problem solve uh, after the break. You're listening to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. More chats with Angela Prentner-Smith, the founder and managing director of This Is Milk, next. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Go Radio Business Show and we're chatting to Angela Prentner-Smith, the founder and managing director of This Is Milk. Angela, you talked about problem-solving what are the key characteristics or traits that have made you so successful? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, to my mind, the first and foremost thing about is is understanding the problem. Have you have you done the discovery? Do you really understand what the problem is that you're trying to solve? And so often I've sat in meetings with people going, we need to do this. I'm going, but why? Why are we doing this? And then when you get through it, you're like, that's not the problem that we need to solve at all. So I think first and foremost, it's identifying the right problem and whose problem it is and what are we solving this for? So looking at things from you know multiple angles, going and asking the right questions and then working with the people whose problem it is, I think is key. You know, solve problems with people, not for them. Um, because they're the people with the problem, they'll understand it the best. So I think that's, that to me, that's about being human-centered, right? And through everything that you do. And it's also about breaking down siloed thoughts, siloed thinking patterns. This, this was Einstein's approach, five minutes solving the problem and 55 minutes to work out why you've got a problem. Exactly, exactly that, yeah. You know, really understand the problem in the first place before you can solve it. And sometimes the solution's really simple, once you understand what the real problem is, right? So you've worked across the world. Are there differences, positive and negative, in the way some countries, their culture, tackles problems or tackles business? Is there anything we can learn from it? So <laughs> I went to an event once and it was about, um, it was like a women in business event teaching us about, you know, pitching for investment and stuff like this. And this this lady stood up and she was American and she was talking about how the, the problem that she sees with Scotland is that we're afraid of failure. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't think Scotland is afraid of failure. I actually think we're afraid of success. In Scotland, there's like this kind of, did you I? <laughs> of attitude right <laughs> this uh, what I call like there's some people on my team that I call them out I'm like oh my goodness west of Scotland's rearing its head there again it's like it's, it's fear of success rather than fear of failure it's not that people in Scotland are afraid to fail it's almost like they expect to fail um, and they're afraid of success so I think that's certainly potentially a cultural difference there um what I have seen working in other parts of the world is there are cultural differences that there are. Um, I've been delivering a lot of training with the Middle East. Um, and there's when you're delivering training, for example, um, there's different just etiquette. Right, just different etiquette in terms of terms of manners and respect that you have to be aware of, and they won't necessarily challenge you the same as somebody in the UK might, because I do think the UK particularly has quite a good culture of debate. 
you know, we are quite good at debating here and challenging each other and and that kind of thing. Don't necessarily see that in all parts of the world. Um, I went on an, I'm originally Canadian, but I went on an ambassadorial trip back to Canada as part of a TRC media program. And we went and we did like 36 business meetings along the Toronto Waterloo um, tech district. And it was really interesting hearing the Canadians, although I am one, talk about themselves in relation to to the states and it was like we never want to be what number one we always want to be number two we'll be the first followers and how that kind of cultural pervasion there of no we'll wait we'll see what the states does we'll be number two we're we're more polite we're not going to be brash like the americans and this stuff does come across in business and this is stuff that you do have to be aware of as well but particularly in scotland yeah i think there there is still that kind of it, it, it's like a fear of success. It's a fear of, you know, putting your head above the parapet and, you know, being taken down by everyone who, you know, who do you think you are? It's funny, all, all the years being involved, obviously, myself and Tom, I've never thought that. Really? I've never thought that. No, I've no? never, no, I, I think there's always that desire to be successful. So it's given me something to think about, <laughs> but I've certainly never thought that. I always thought we, we were we were very much the opposite of the whole entrepreneurial thing in the States where we wanted to be quietly successful. Quietly right. successful. Right, so we, there's, there's so many companies that are um, the greatest story never told, I that think, in true. Scotland. So uh, it's funny, I had not thought about it that way. It's, it's like that the Scottish maw thing right like yeah. it's that my mother-in-law God bless her it's you say something to her and she immediately goes well the thing about that is and inside I'm like oh my god my soul is dying here I can't hear about the thing about this I want I just you know <laughs> just enjoy this with me right and I swear to God when I said I was open in a business she looked at me like I had three heads yeah. like why would you do that <laughs> just go back to the public sector and I'm going yeah. it's killing me the public sector is killing me <laughs> but, but your ideology the way you're thinking what's coming across it must be sad to sit in Toronto thinking that the people that the culture is happy to be second. Yes, totally, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, particularly being Canadian yeah. as well, you know, like I'm proud of, uh, 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 Toronto's an amazing city, like, and I'm yeah. proud of Canada for a lot of things, a lot of things we can't be proud of. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, there is something there, particularly when you're looking at America and going, it's not all good what they've done, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Someone who operates there, I can definitely tell you it's not all good there. Yeah, it's not. It's not. <laughs> well, you set up the business here in Scotland and in Glasgow, in Glasgow. What were the challenges you faced personally getting that up and running? God, where do I start? <laughs> um, apart, apart from your mother-in-law. <laughs> apart from my mother-in-law. <laughs> I, I did feel a little bit of, when I first started, a bit of like that tall poppy syndrome. Like, who do you think you are to be doing this? I'll be honest, that was there. I don't feel that anymore. I actually feel now that it's like there are people sitting there like in the background watching us. It's like the lurkers that are watching there and they're kind of like, she's done it, like, right? Like we've earned our stripes, we're still standing. The hardest thing was probably just trying to understand what our market was and getting that kind of like, right, how can I communicate to a market that isn't quite ready for us yet? And what is it that we're selling? And how do I get enough money in? And, and all of those kind of normal start of business stuff, you know, really finding your place in the market. Yeah. Angela, can I ask you, you mentioned the government. If you're allowed, can you tell us a couple more big customers who you work for? Um, yes, yeah, so we are, we 
are working with Sage Accounting. They're a customer of ours. We've also um, X Design. We deliver some. We've got quite a, a large contract to deliver training to all of their staff. Um, who else? We've worked with uh, a number of banks, which I'm probably not allowed to mention. Fair but uh, yeah, we've got banks as customers. Um, also third sector. So recently did some work with Serenians and Impact Arts, and also a couple of little Canadian charities. So Peggy Baker Dance Studio. So she is a literally a living legend, yeah. and. Um, volcano theater production so we've done everything from that that's the soul food as i call it and yeah. up to the banks and big accountancy firms and all right. kinds yeah yeah angela yeah. i'm looking at you starting a business in scotland you know one of the key reasons that willie put the show together was to encourage more people in scotland to think about starting and growing their business so you you've been through this um is there any learning is there any areas you thought, right, I could get more support for that or here's what we could do better. What's your what's your thinking? Um, so one of my reflections slash frustrations on when I did first start the business is, you know, there there are a lot of support institutions in Scotland, even in the networks that are almost self-formed and stuff. And yeah. when you find those networks of people that are really there to back you, they're they're there. They are. However, one of my frustrations was the amount of push really early on to employ people. Um, and I actually think in a way it's a bit irresponsible. You know, it's pushing you to employ people before you're ready. But that was the way that you have to get the funding. And it's through like employment measures. And, you know, these things are great when you're at a certain stage of you do need to employ people. But actually the overhead, and I don't just mean the financial overhead, the emotional overhead, the the burden of employment is is really quite big. And there was such a push to go down that route. And I understand it from a kind of policy perspective. You know, people want, you know, the, the, the nation needs entrepreneurs to employ people, to keep the economy going, to get people into jobs and all that. So I understand it. But if you're not ready as a business to employ people, then I don't think that that push is really the right thing at the right time. Yeah, I can Interesting understand that. point, yeah. yeah I, I, I can understand I, I've that. I've looked at it from that point of view. Yeah. I, I remember about 36 years ago applying to Scottish Enterprise for a grant when I set up my business. I'll never forget it. And I ended up in a waiting room in an office in Waterloo Street and a woman came from behind the desk through the door and uh, asked me a few questions uh, and completely dismissed me. I thought, I, was, I thought that this lady actually thought that I was asking her to get into her bag and give me money to employ somebody. But th that was the question. How many people have you got working? How many do you plan to start? I wasn't interested in my business. So the whole matrix for them was all about you know, the, the human side. But but I'm, I'm delighted you know, that you said about there is plenty of help. I think when... When Tom and the guy started the Entrepreneurial Exchange nearly 30, over 30 years ago now, that was the whole purpose. And I think the people who have all played a part in all the various things, we talk about them every week, the Edge, Entrepreneurial yep. Hub, you know, um, all these, the help that there is for businesses in Scotland is absolutely fantastic. It is. There's loads. There's absolutely loads. And actually, one of the challenges is navigating it and finding where the right yes. support for you is, right? Because yep. there is there is so much to it. And, and that was a mm -hmm. job in itself. And, yeah. you know, finding it but it is there it is absolutely there yeah. how, how difficult is it to transform an established legacy business 
Oh, and so hard. And how do they hard. take to you, you know, when you you talk about this, some of the themes, inclusive workplaces, human-centred, that must be kind of scary for people who have never heard <laughs> these things. Parenting and entrepreneurship, neurodiversity, these are all buzzwords that when I was looking at uh, your website, you talk about. So... I think if a business is not ready to make that transformation, there's no point in us working with them, frankly. If you're sitting talking to somebody and they're looking at you like I have three heads, they're not ready, right? So just walk away, right? Don't even try to change that business. That's somebody else's problem for another day. Um, the ones that we talk to are the ones that are already on this journey, right? They're already on that journey. They've, they've made a decision. It's like quitting smoking, right? I can't make you quit smoking. Um, nobody else can. But if you've decided that you're going to quit smoking, then you'll go on that journey. And that that's what we really need. Um, and I do believe in this kind of critical mass thing when there is enough of a feeling, enough, of en- enough energy from the people in a place to make that change, then that's the right time to go through that. What's your vision then for the future? You're successful now. You've picked up that award, as we just discussed earlier. Where do you see yourselves in three years, five years? Um, so the, the next year is pivotal for us. So we have, are literally just went live with our technology product, which is an inclusive learning platform. We are piloting that with the Scottish government next week. That is our business's future. I'm maintaining the consultancy and the training business. They basically sit together. Um, the, the learning platform will be the way that we deliver our training over time. I'm looking for investment over this next year to basically get that um, pilot product as it is now to a commercial stage. And we're looking for early adopter businesses to bring that into workplaces so that we can trial and iterate and, and build out what it needs to be. Um, so that's the next year's pivotal. I see the consultancy and the training business growing organically. We are making some really big wins on that side in terms of, um, you know, growth and opportunity in sales. It is growing that is organic and we're going to keep going organically. And really what I'm what I'm here to do is is democratize learning through um, the, the tech product that we've got within three years. Um, Gosh, within three years, I would like us to see that that's the mainstay of the business is our commercial offering on the the B2B product, the the tech product. And then over five years, maybe I'll start to think about selling it and go from there and do my next thing. Oh, I think that's brilliant. It's it's been inspirational listening to you. Thank you very much, Angela. After the break, we go into the boardroom where Tom and Willie answer your business questions and offer brilliant advice. If you want to take part, then simply email your questions to gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with business advice, insight and inspiration. If you have any questions you want read out on the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag gohunterandhockey. We're going to our phone lines and first up is George Wills. Welcome to the show, George. Hi there. What's your question for Tom and Willie? Well, um, I've listened to the show and I've heard you discussing the flaws in the training offered by colleges. And I wondered if you think that a return to the dairy lease and sandwich apprenticeships 
of the 1950s and the 1960s and even later would um, would help to solve the problems. Well, I think Willie's spoken about this before, so we'll come to him first, Willie. Morning, George. Good morning, Willie. Thanks, thanks for calling. Um, I don't think it's a problem actually with the colleges. I think that the, the, the guidelines laid down by the government you know, for the various new kind of modern apprenticeships and schemes have changed. I'm sure the colleges would be delighted to go back to, you know, day release, one week and free, all the things, you know, that I, I remember when, when I was at college. Um, and I think that, but you're absolutely right, that we have to recognise the importance of these apprenticeships. I think the, the new modern kind of, and I, I hate to use the phrase, but watered down accreditation that people are getting has lulled people into a false sense of security in relation to that's me set up for life, I've got a qualification and I'll earn good money. I think if we go back to and talking about the technical apprenticeships now, that I think that they're, they're, that there's there's got to be scope to increase the volume. I mentioned it earlier, we mentioned it in previous weeks, that I'm saying that after the, the pandemic is all over, that we're going to have to do more and more for young people than we've done over the last few years. And I think that, that the point you're making, the changes since the 60s and 70s, um, and again, I think they've all been led by government from the YTS scheme to modern apprenticeships. I think we're, what's happened is, is that the apprenticeships as we knew them have kind of been forgotten about and there's not been a focus on them and I think we have to get back to that. But um, And I'm sure that the colleges are happy to adapt you know, back to the, the, the way that we used to deal with modern apprenticeships. Tom, what's your view? Morning, George. It's, it's great to hear from you. We had a lovely um, time with your daughter, um, Heather, when she yes. was talking about little chauffeur drives. So it's, it's great to keep it in the family, George. Uh-huh. Well, that's what really brought so, me on to listening to your show. I think your question goes to the heart of every business. Um, you can be really successful as a sole trader, and you might be happy doing that. But if you want to grow a business of any size, you've got to take people with you. And the biggest challenge that faces every business, regardless of what age we're in, is the attraction and retention of talent. And we're seeing it now. It's been exacerbated by um, Brexit, by COVID, the lack of um, tradesmen, the lack of electricians, bricklayers, plumbers, all of these things. And I think um, the government should sit with people like Willie, who you'll have heard earlier in the show talk about scrap the current apprenticeship levy and change it to something that works for the young people and works for the employer. Let's rip up what we've got. As far as I'm concerned, it's not working. And let's start again. But listen to people who know what they're talking about to do it. And I really believe there will be a way of sorting this. I'm I'm not so critical of the colleges. As Willie said, I'm critical of policy being enforced on organisations from a top down where we should really be listening from the bottom up and designing something that's fit for purpose. So what do you think, George? Well, I agree entirely. I maybe gave you the wrong impression about um, colleges when I was talking about the flaws. It was really the flaws in the system. We're all agreeing. Um, in my experience, there are lots of young people who don't want to go to college. They want to get out. They want to get a job. 
They want to earn money. They want to become independent. Um, and it seems to me that the system that's in place now discourages them from doing that and says, oh, you've got to go to college. And, and I think that's maybe part of the, the, the problem in all the shortages we're seeing because companies aren't able to take on young people and train them as brickies and as electricians and as all the job the jobs that we need filled. Yeah, I would agree with you, George. I mean, I'm a great believer in learn by doing. And I really think that if you've if you've got a good training, and this is what I'm asking Rishi Sunak to do in his budget, is incentivize the right behavior from business. So mm-hmm. really encourage businesses to get their training and development sorted so that we can encourage young people into business. We can offer them something that's really worthwhile. It works for them. It works mm-hmm. for the business and it works for the country. I think this is a really good point. It'd be interesting today, back in our day, I would imagine when I was at college, 99% of the people attending college actually had jobs. It'd be interesting today to see what the mix is of the amount of young people who are just attending college for an education who don't have a job. Mm-hmm. So what's your view, George? What do you think? Well, I would like to see... Um, I think what you said, Tom, about um, companies being encouraged um, to buy sort of fiscal arrangements to actually then take on people, because there is a problem if they just take on people and pay them the kind of wages that they have to pay these days, it's a lot of money coming out of the business to train people. So I do think that if the Chancellor could look at it in such a way that there is a, a tax incentive for companies the companies can say well there's the advantage for me as well as getting the new people into 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 training George I've said this for weeks and weeks I've been saying it for years and years that um, and most times when we take on a young apprentice we've taken on hundreds over the years that you cannot charge the cost of that apprentice to the client Mm-hmm. So for me, the government should be quite simple that if you have a young person employed as an apprentice that you're going to teach them where they could be in um, you know, gainful employment for the rest of your life, you should be able to deduct from tax the cost of the apprenticeship. The minute mm-hmm. you start benefiting and you charge the guy, that's fine then, then that, that subsidy should stop. But if, if the government wanted to, to have a real go-ahead programme for getting young people into meaningful training and apprenticeships, then while you're in a, an apprenticeship, then I think you should be able to deduct that against tax. Tom, do you agree? I 100% agree. Listen to people who know what they're talking about and get on with it. That's great. Are you happy with those answers, George? Can I give you clarity? I, I'm very happy. I just hope that um, government, or do you find a way to get government to listen to you because too often the plans and, and things that they put forward are really to do with the headline they get tomorrow, the, the, the way that they're able to score points against their political opponents rather than actually solving a real problem, which is what we need to do as a country. I, I mentioned earlier, George, you know, about the apprenticeship levy and how absurd it is. I would love hmm. to meet the government advisor that told the government that the on-the-job training does not count as part of the education, the only the day or the week they were at college. I'd love to meet him mm-hmm. 
Right, because <laughs> it's the other way about. 90% of all his learning is on-the-job learning. Mm. Great. Now, so thank you for the call, George. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Good luck. Thank Thanks, you very George. much. Good luck. Thanks, George. Got an interesting email uh, from someone uh, saying that Andy Hornby, obviously the former H-Boss chief in the lead-up to the... 2008 financial crash has defended his track record in business saying no one is perfect. Are we too unforgiving of errors? Should we accept that most business leaders don't get it right all the time? Donald, can I ask you, was that a pun? Andy Hornby is defending his track record. <laughs> <laughs> the fact controller. Yes, yes. Um, I think, well, I think both me and Tom, I think, know Andy Hornby. I certainly know Andy for his time at Asda and his time at the bank. I've got to be honest with you, I think Andy got off light, right, when everyone else, you know, was was um, getting attacked by the media. To be fair to Andy, he managed to get himself out quickly and get another job and, and you know, rebuild a reputation. But uh, I, I think that... Um, Unfortunately, part of the mistakes that you know that Andy made affected hundreds of thousands, millions of people. So it's kind of it's kind of difficult to to kind of airbrush that out. But uh, everybody should be allowed to go on with their lives thereafter. We all make mistakes, but uh, I think that um, people need to recognise that um, when when you're in when you're part of serving the public, then you're you're always always going to get that. Tom, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, you know, the buck stops at you and therefore there's there's no one else to blame. And um, of course, none of us are perfect. Of course we're not. And of course we make mistakes. Hopefully we learn from them. But there's accountability as well. And if you're a leader of a big public company and the buck should stop at you, in Andy's case, others were blamed and he seemed to go off and reinvent himself so I don't think that's too fair if you're a good leader you'll say this was my fault I apologise I'm going to learn from it and you hopefully move on but accountability is a really important word here Donald Indeed Uh, if I can ask you both I don't know if you'll be able to answer me but the biggest mistake someone has taken you to task for and what did you learn Send me brave enough to say to you, you've got it wrong. Yeah, so my so my biggest mistake, which is well documented, is losing over two hundred and fifty million pounds. And my wife took me to task, <laughs> and she said, "What the hell are you doing, Tom?" Yeah. <laughs> and she was quite right. <laughs> uh, I've mentioned in the past. There's absolutely no doubt the biggest mistake I ever made, and I certainly get took to task on it, was deciding to get greedy and. Uh, and start to manufacturing bottle cooling cabinets. You know, I, I just decided that I was buying so many cabinets, I was making loads of money, but why should I not get the money that I'm giving to the manufacturer? So that was, uh, and that was like just having a big black hole in the ground and getting me a wheelbarrow every day and, and pouring £20 notes into it. And, and trust me, I got well taken to task. <laughs> and Donald, I would say the person who'll be taking Willie to task after this show is the guy responsible for heat pumps. Definitely. Because Willie's <laughs> well, well, killed the business. Bring it on. And, and seeing less, he's six feet four both ways, then I'm dying to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> How tolerant are you both of mistakes and people who make them in your business? 
I mean, how many mistakes do you think? You know, always a policy. If you make a mistake, that's fine. Learn from it as long as it's once. What's your attitude? I would say that I've kind of mellowed a wee bit. I would say it used You've to be, mellowed, Willie? Uh, well, it used to be a wee bit. <laughs> my, my initial reaction would be a bit volcanic, uh, and, and then I would calm down. I, I think now that... Um, I kind of would still shoot for the hip a wee bit if it's a stupid mistake and then calm down very, very quickly. So I, I think I've learned over the years how to deal with mistakes and I've realised that I've, I've made some myself. But one of the points that, that you made earlier there, and me and Tom have discussed as we like, the sad thing about being the boss is sometimes people don't point out the mistakes. Right? And that's how I would certainly encourage anybody in business, if you're of a size... To get a get an on exec director that's not afraid of you and let them tell you, him or her, sorry, tell you that where you're going wrong and listen to them, right? Because it is a lonely place being the leader and you could be making mistakes every day and not know about it. And the sad thing is you kind of stop learning a wee bit when you don't have that balance. So that's the one bit of advice I would give to people about mistakes. Tom? Yeah, well, I think everybody deserves a second chance. Do they deserve a third or fourth chance? Eh, probably not. Are you volcanic? Or are you very calm and mellow? No, I'm, 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 I can only remember once or twice that I've lost my temper, and it's mainly at, at myself. Um, I don't think you get anywhere by being volcanic with your team. Your team just look at you. and as, as, You'll hear me say it often, talent is in short supply. And if you're one of these people who shout and bawl, talent will go somewhere else and get a better job. I've never done that. I've never shouted at anybody. No. Oh, great stuff. Well, there might be plenty of people to shout at when COP26 rolls into Glasgow. Uh, unfortunately, we'll be taking a couple of weeks break as a result of it because Tom and Willie and myself are all deeply involved in it. So that's all we have time for this week. Hopefully you've enjoyed the show, but if you have any feedback for us or want to know more about how you can get involved, visit thisisgo.co.uk and don't forget you can put questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Business show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.